This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. For today's Toil and Trouble Employment Law slot, I'm talking to Charlotte Joy, a Senior Associate at BE Employment Law, about 90-day trials being extended to all workplaces and what employers need to know about how to best use them. Charlotte, thank you for coming in. Um, Are your employer um, customers, are they happy about this? Yes, they do see it as another um, tool in their toolbox, but it has been uh, some time for some of them that they've been able to use them because they're of that larger size. So there's certainly a lot of questions coming in about how can I use them um, can I do X and Y? So. Right. And that's what you're here today to talk about, of course, some of the common pitfalls, because many cases that underpin employment court and ERA um, cases are to do with 90-day trials, aren't they? It's quite common, comes up as a as a problem. That's right. And I think because of the impact of the individual, the courts have been clear that trial periods and trial period law should be strictly applied. So it's definitely... Um, something that they won't try and get around to suit an employer. Right. So what are the common mistakes that are made? Commonly, um, employers will offer employment on a essentially an informal conversation. They'll talk about terms and there is an acceptance of that employment before an employment agreement is present. So that poses issues when a trial period is then um, given at the last second. Um, Other common pitfalls are an employee not even being given an employment agreement until after they've started work or haven't signed an employment agreement until after they've started work. So again, trying to introduce a trial period at that time is going to be unlawful. So let's say you ask me out for coffee and say, look, I've got a bit of filing work in the office. I'd like to you know, talk to you about possibly doing some work for us. We go out for a coffee and you say, yeah, that sounds great. Why don't you come in on Monday? Or, um, yes, I agree to pay you this X, Y, Z. You know, can that still be done or does does there have to be caution about how that's There should done? definitely be caution in that conversation. Yeah. When you're talking about those key terms like I'll pay you X amount and you can start on Monday, that is going to be seen as an offer of employment, talking about those key terms. So you'd be far safer to say, look, we've got some work. We can only offer you around about this amount, um, but that's going to be subject to our other terms of employment as well. And we'd need to get you an employment agreement for you to look through. So how best is it to set up a work trial? What are sort of the steps that you need to go through? You see someone, you think they'd be good, but you want to do things according to the 90-day trial law. It's really not a work trial unless someone has accepted employment. So it would be unlawful to have a potential applicant come in and flip burgers for a couple of hours and then say, great, you have the job, here is an employment agreement. At that point, the individual has already done work for the company and it would already be seen to be an employee. So to trial an employee, you truly need to make sure that they have that trial period in place and they've agreed to it before they 
do their trial. So as with everything, it sort of comes down to uh, dotting your I's and crossing your T's properly and getting that employment agreement in place. That's exactly right. And ensuring that the individual has an opportunity to um, seek advice on that employment agreement as well. Um, that might be through asking questions, but also being able to you know, go talk to a lawyer if needed. So they need an opportunity to consider an employment agreement and consider important terms like a trial period. And then what happens at the end of the 90 days? So the key thing is to make sure you know when your 90 days um, ends. Um, At the end of that time, before the end of 90 days, um, an employer can call an individual into a meeting um, and say, look, it just just hasn't worked out. You're not a good fit. Um, We're giving you notice of termination, relying on the trial period clause in your employment agreement. Um, That will still have a notice period, um, but... If the employment agreement is drafted right, you can then opt to pay in lieu of notice rather than getting that individual to work out the notice. So there still would be a notice period. For a trial period, it's normally only about a couple of days. Um, but you still need to have a look at that clause and see what it says. Right. What about people who are hired by temp agencies? Um, I know they have. there's a slightly different set of considerations there? Yeah, so the starting point for trial periods is that they can only be used where there is a new employee, and that is very clear. So if someone has been a a temp, um, regardless of whether they were engaged as a contractor, say, for that temping agency or as an employee, um, and then at some point they get offered employment directly from, I guess you could say, the end user of that temping agency. Um, Despite that person already being in the business for a period of time, they could actually be offered employment on a trial period, and that could be lawful. Um, There is some risk in that situation with any temping arrangement that there is sort of a dual employment, a dual employer type risk. Um, but if the temping agency is dotting all their I's and crossing their T's, that is truly their worker, um, and you could have a trial period for someone who has had the odd day here or there um, in your business. That seems amazing that a company would pay a temp agency and then undertake a 90-day trial. You know, the whole idea, I guess, of getting temps, they are already um, looked at by that agency and sort of vetted. You know, is it? do you think it would be a common problem? I don't think so because I think that a lot of um, attempts, I think, are attempt because that suits their lifestyle. So perhaps then going into permanent employment for the end user may not be something that they are um, as interested in. But that does happen from time to time and could also happen in contractor situations as well. So you have a contract accountant working for you. Um, five hours, um, you know, every week or so or as needed. And then, you know, you may um, get an offer of employment down the line that could have a trial period in it, um, which might seem bizarre because, again, you're not truly trialling that individual. But the key thing is that they haven't been an employee before. So an employer doesn't have to have a 90-day trial period in the employment agreement, do they? No, absolutely not. Um, 
probably more common in more junior roles, um, a, a more senior role, less likelihood perhaps of having a trial period. Um, there is also a probationary period, which um, can f- confuse some employers. So that is similar in a sense that it's a period to test the suitability of an employee, but there isn't the same protections around just being able to dismiss someone and not have any uh, recourse in terms of unjustified dismissal claims. You still have to follow a fuller and fair process more akin to your standard termination processes. Are you anticipating more work as a result of this law change? Definitely. Um, I think a lot of employers will be a bit complacent and will just um, chuck in um, a, a clause and not understand, I think, the, the dotting the I's and crossing the T's that they need to do at the start of that process to make sure it's um, enforceable. Charlotte, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Paving the way for more affordable, sustainable homes requires pragmatic policy setting and industry frameworks, not the next big shiny thing, writes Maria Slade in this week's Shoeshine. So Maria, is New Zealand lacking in pragmatic policy setting when it comes to housing? What sparked this was the case of a guy called Murphy O'Neill who has a venture called Adaptable Structures. And Murphy's a very forthright American who has invested his all, all his life savings and energy basically into developing this prefabricated modular housing system that's based on a recycled aluminium framework. So it ticks every kind of sustainability, usability, affordability kind of box. And yet he has pretty much failed to get any kind of government agency interested in his venture, and, and he just can't understand it. He It even took him a year to get uh, the R&D tax credit because he had to convince Callaghan Innovation and um, the IRD that what he was doing was, was resort, you know, R&D. And then he tried to apply for a Callaghan grant and was told that they had a different definition of what was R&D and that, it, you know, there was a, a, fu- a fundamentally different way that they applied this kind of grant compared with the tax credit. And, you know, he, he's applied to IMBI, um, Kayanga Aura, all sorts of agencies and just nobody seems to, there just doesn't seem to be any way to get any traction for his innovation. And given that, okay, his innovation might not be the right one, but given we have a housing crisis, and you know all government agencies are talking about sustainability and and affordability you'd think they'd be interested but but seemingly not and he was even told I have seen the email chain that government interventions typically are not linked so while Callahan might be doing one specific thing in this specific area that they don't have to support innovation generally and they don't have to support innovation in a particular sector such as construction. So yes, I would say New Zealand does lack a, a pragmatic, um, coordinated approach. And it's not just about the investment, is it? It's, it's more that he needs these big government contracts to be able to build his business. Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things in there. One one thing, actually, is um, that we have a very rigid building code that is very designed towards our traditional methods of building in wood. And, uh, you know, just to give you an example there, there is a company called Save Board, which is developing um, wall 
boards like jib alternatives out of recyclable materials. Uh, so very eco-friendly, you know, it's a great venture. He's got plants here and in Australia. But because he doesn't tick a box in the building code, he has to apply to be an alternative product. And that's taken about a year and he still hasn't got there. And he's also going to apply to be an environmental, to get an environmental product declaration, which is a trans-Tasman standard. But that's going to cost him $100,000. So he says the barriers to innovation are just so high, particularly for small firms like that. Mm. So, so you have that kind of problem, but then there is also this idea of um, off-site manufacturing, which is what Murphy O'Neill is doing with adaptable structures. And that's a manufacturing system, and that's a different idea from construction. And a lot of the housing advocates are saying, well, you know, why have we still got builders putting up open frames on concrete slabs when they're at the mercy of the weather and, you know, they have to get the roof on before they can put the jib on and all this sort of thing? Why isn't much more of this happening off-site? And so many, you know, most industries are all subject to manufacturing disciplines, so why not housing? So is that to do with the inflexible regulation which is stopping this sort of innovation from happening? That is a part of it. And one of the things that has occurred recently, which you know everyone's welcoming as quite a, a big advancement, is we have a thing called Built Ready, which now means that off-site manufacturers uh, who meet certain requirements are able to sign off on their own uh, designs. So rather than having to go to each individual council, and there's about 70-odd of them in this country who will all take slightly different interpretations of the building code, these guys can come along and go, no, we've got the built ready tick, you have to accept our products. So that has been a big advancement and that has come about uh, through a thing called the Construction Sector Accord, which was set up about five years ago, pre-COVID. And, um, you know, it's, it's started to sort of gain some traction. But the problem we have now is that has now been a casualty of the coalition agreement and it has been scrapped. So, you know, where do we go from here? Mm. And so are people um, in the industry, are they hopeful that the new government will help help them uh, in terms of the regulations? Or, you know, they've scrapped this, this accord, so what's going on? Yeah, the, the, the scrapping of the construction sector accord has occurred as part of a wider ditching of um, an, an, an industry, industry transformation plan programme that the last government had. And the new government does recognise that the work of the accord does need to go on in some way, but they're not prepared to resource it in the same way as the last government was. Um, But yes, there is hope that that work will be picked up. And it is sorely needed because the Commerce Commission, in its report on the building products sector a couple of years ago, it recommended that off-site manufacturing was a really necessary component to try and generate competition in the sector and that it really needed an all-of-government approach to get it happening. Because the thing is, of course, it's not like a traditional builder who if work slows off, he can just lay off a few staff or whatever. If you're investing in an OSM plant, you, you know, you've got millions of dollars invested in equipment and so forth, you need a pipeline. Uh, you need to be sure that there is a pipeline of work happening. And that's where things like government procurement decisions can make a difference. Uh, I've heard that in Canada, the government will only hand out contracts if buildings can be completed within a certain time frame. So, you know, this is the sort of thing housing advocates are saying we need to be looking at here. And, yeah, so watch this space with this new government, whether they're going to pick up that work and and try and generate a a more coordinated approach to fostering innovation. Thanks, Maria. Thank you.
like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Labour hire firm Hirestaff was the second fastest growing company on last year's Deloitte Fast 50. This despite a slowing employment market. Co-founder Kat Peters joins me to discuss the outlook for 2024. And Kat, you've seen phenomenal growth. What's it looking like at the beginning of this year? Yeah, so I think it is very different. So when we were doing our FY24 kind of forecasts in you know Jan last year, to where we are now, it is really different. So I think it's definitely slowed. I think, you know, we came from a very uh, candidate short market and now it's completely different. There's so many candidates available and we're finding them a lot tougher to place into work. So companies aren't taking as many staff. You know, we've had a huge migration. Uh, what effect has that had, do you think? Yeah, so obviously migrant workers have a really good reputation. They generally come here to, to work hard. And so we're seeing a lot of migrant workers being placed into those lower skilled jobs, which is obviously taking away work from Kiwis, which makes it a bit tricky. You are actually an accredited employer with the Philippines, but you've sort of resisted going down that track too far. Just, just explain to us what the pitfalls are of that kind of arrangement. Yeah, so essentially when you hire migrant workers, you're employing them full time. So as a recruitment agency, if you can't place them with your clients or your other businesses, you still have to pay their wages. So you wear quite a lot of risk. And, you know, when you've got companies that were taking 10 people and now only taking two, it makes it really, really difficult for us to make the call to bring in migrant workers, which is why we've actually held off. So what are the next steps then for you this year to sort of keep things ticking over? Yeah, so we are still expanding our Auckland-based office. So we've still got a couple of heads that we need to recruit for across trades and labour and warehousing and logistics. We're also, we've opened Waikato as well. So we've got a couple more heads that we want to recruit for there. But essentially it's just adding good people into the team and expanding into the regions. You've described yourself as the McDonald's of recruitment. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so essentially, you know, when you go to McDonald's, you know what you're going to get. It's fast. You get what you want, and so we kind of operate like that. So if a candidate comes in today, they need to leave with a job starting tomorrow. So we really drive that kind of speed to market and that urgency, both for the candidate, but equally to fill roles with the client. What do you think is your point of difference? There's a lot of labour hire companies out there. What are you doing differently? Yeah, probably a couple of things. Um, the first is our recruitment strategy. So we don't hire from within the within the industry you know we've got tradespeople selling to tradespeople so in our trades team we've got an ex-roofer an ex-electrician an uh, ex-labourer and you've got labourers talking to you know people on site so they get their language they get what they want as opposed to a recruiter that's just spent their whole career in an office so I think the way that we recruit is really different and equally you know we do a few things really well we focus on you know sticking to our knitting taking good business and just offering a really great service. One of the changes that the new government's making is bringing back the 90-day rule. Um, How will that help? Yeah, so I think, you know, for higher staff anyway, we generally tend to go for the small to medium-sized businesses. So that's been around, you know, forever. Uh, For the bigger businesses that it does affect, you know, it's actually a really good thing because now companies can come to us, trial someone out for three months, take them on their books, and then they get another three months. So essentially, you've got a six-month trial before actually, you know, committing and taking someone on permanent. 
And you, you do both uh, labour hire and permanent recruitment. How do you describe the, the types of jobs that you're kind of going for? Are you doing the short-term sort of gigs or what are you doing? No, from a business decision, we actually made the call not to do short-term work and we classify short-term as anything less than a few weeks. You know, it doesn't make sense for us to put someone into a one-day job and then they change to another. You know, candidates come to us because they want long-term work and that's the kind of jobs that we do. So often we'll put someone in for a three-month contract and then they'll go permanent at the end. So we do temp to perm as a kind of primary focus. And what industries are you currently in? Yeah, so we've got trades, construction, manufacturing, logistics, and we've also recently opened our business support division. So a business can come to us and, you know, get a labour in the warehouse, but equally they can also get a a payroll person as well. So we're kind of end-to-end, like full service recruitment now. Is there any particular areas you'd like to expand into that you've got your eye on? Not at this stage. I think, you know, like I said before, like we want to stick to our knitting. We know what works. And I think, you know, one of the things that's put us in a really good position is that focus. So we'll do blue collar, we'll do business support. But I think from a sector point of view, that's probably where we'll end. And you come from a marketing background and you guys have been quite good at promoting yourselves, you know, uh, entering the Fast 50 and so forth. Tell us a bit about your thoughts around that, how you market something like a labour hire firm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I did take a lot of learnings from FMCG and, and banking. You know, the, the most important thing is to be top of mind and have awareness. You know, we, we don't do traditional recruitment labour stuff like going on radio or doing trade shows. It just doesn't work. We put money where we get a return and just do things from other sectors that work really well. Obviously you're about to get a new job yeah. and expansion <laughs> of your family. Yeah. Um, how do you guys see the future? Are you still quite excited about the business that you're building? Yeah for sure. So um, this is our second child. I'll go on mat, well, you know, mat leave for six months but I'll still be working in the background and then when we come back we'll actually be able to focus on opening other regions because I'm actually replacing my role and yeah it'll be great because you know we might be able to travel to a region and open a branch and kind of be a little bit more flexible and grow the business as opposed to working in it. Kat Peters of High Staff, thanks for coming in. Thanks. It's time for Economy Matters with NBR columnist Hilmari Schultz. Hilmari, you're taking a look at migration today. Um, hi, Jono. Yes, I am. I do think that um, it's been in the news in the last couple of months um, about our significant increase in migration numbers. And I do think it's time that we also have a, um, a clear and a strong look at where our migrants are coming from and where they would actually come from in the future as well. Well, let's compare and contrast. Where are they coming from now and where do you think they'll come from in 10 years' time? Well, up until the 1980s, um, you know, all of our migrants came from the UK, from the motherland. Um, And then from there onwards, we had a shift in policy where we started focusing more on skills, attracting the right skills. Um, So that has led to today where the majority of our migrants are from India, China and uh, the Philippines, as well as still from the UK and um, South Africa. But we are seeing a slight shift in getting um, more migrants coming in from other parts of the world and especially from Africa. Although the migrants from Africa and New Zealand are still a very, very small proportion, I do think that in the next 20 to 30 years, we will see a definite increase in migrants from Africa coming to settle in New Zealand. 
You talk about an ageing working population here in New Zealand. Are those people going to fill those worker gaps? Absolutely. If you look at it, um, we are currently, it's called an age dependency ratio, where you take the people that work um, and you divide it by the people who are retired or, or who are not in the working population. Currently, ours is about 28%, um, but that's going to go up to about 40% in 30 years' time. So what that the OECD has worked out, that will mean that we will have about a 15% gap in our labour market that needs to be filled, that can't be filled by, you know, people being born in New Zealand. So we will have to attract um, those migrants uh, to come and live and work in New Zealand. How is the government addressing this at the moment? Um, currently, we have seen that they are, um, migration has always been a, a sort of a moving feast in terms of how we change our policies. So the new government has now focused on opening up some of those categories and making sure that we can attract more skilled migrants into the country. But the issue with that is, Jono, is we are competing with Australia, with Canada, with other European countries. So we have to make sure that there's a comparative advantage for those migrants to come and live and work in New Zealand. Are you talking about higher wages? Definitely. It's not only higher wages, but it's also quality of life, quality of education, housing, opportunities for their families. So it's sort of the whole package. And that would feed into inflation, though, which the Reserve Bank doesn't want to hear about at the moment. Um, Yeah. I do think, but that again is going in peaks and troughs. Um, so we have to bring in migrants. We have to have that labour part because we have to increase um, our productive side of our economy as well. So although some of it might fuel inflation over the long term, we do need to address some of these issues. And the housing stock, you meaning more houses need to be built over a certain period of time? Um, absolutely. Um, uh, and that has been um, a pressure point in New Zealand for a very, very long time. And that we do need to address that in the next 20 or 30 years to ensure that we have a good housing quality stock to be able to house our own people, but also attract migrants. Migration was certainly the story of 2023. What are your expectations for this new year? I do think it is still going to continue um, and we will see the record number of migrants still coming into the country. But we are also seeing a lot of Kiwis leaving for Australia. And what the research shows is um, as Kiwis like to go overseas, um, if you go anywhere else than Australia, the probability of you coming back is quite high. But Kiwis moving to Australia, the majority of them tend to settle in Australia and they don't come back to New Zealand. Overall, this year, will there still be a bigger pool of people available to work? Um, we think so. We think so. We Because um, currently, to be able to enter into the country, you do have to have a job offer. Um, so we will still see quite a lot of jobs being filled by migrants coming in um, this year. We do think it might start tapering down in 2025. And so unemployment will tick up over the course of this year? Absolutely. I think we will see unemployment creeping up. Um, It might even reach very close to 5% um, in the next um, 18 months. Uh, But that is definitely will be part 
of um, not only the Reserve Bank, but also Treasury trying to curb um, and calm the horses and calm inflation. Mm. And Reserve Bank, you mentioned there, has an act to play this year in terms of whether to hike again, whether to stay at five and a half. That's to come in February. Yes. Um, well, that, uh, yeah, that, uh, ho- hopefully, hopefully it will not be a hike. Um, I do think that um, it, it has been interesting to watch that within the OECD. Um, we are we have been struggling to curb inflation, where the rest of the OECD countries um, have been quite successful in the last six months um, to push down inflation. So it'll be interesting to watch um, what inflation is going to do in the first quarter of 2024. Mm. And do you expect the Reserve Bank's language to be just as strong as they were in November? Absolutely, and it's their job. Um, so I do not think that that language will change for the entire 2024. Um, they might start easing in the first quarter of 2025. Hilmari Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 